It's the Garden Nerd Tip of the Week podcast, where we spend time chatting with expert gardening guests, and we ask for their favorite tip. I'm Christy Wilhelmy. Thanks for joining me. My guest this week is Kathleen Blakestone, co-creator of Moonwater Farm in Compton, California. Moonwater Farm is a land-based learning hub investing in the regeneration of our health, community wealth, and the earth. She and her partner, Richard Drought, launched the farm in order to address food justice issues in Los Angeles. They host farm camp every summer for kids ages 8 to 21, and they offer programming in youth leadership development and city farming. Thanks so much for joining me, Kathleen. I'm excited to talk to you. Pleasure to be here, Christy. I have been to this magical farm in the middle of Compton, and I remember getting out of my car, stepping onto the asphalt, and seeing a horse on the street a few houses down. (laughs) You live in this suburban yet oddly agricultural area. Can you describe your farm for everyone listening? Of course. Uh, Many in the city don't know that Richland Farms, this area of Compton, is one of the oldest agricultural neighborhoods in the county. In fact, Compton is the second oldest city in Los Angeles. And we uh, were fortunate enough to find this property and it is zoned residential agriculture. So my neighbors have horses and cows and goats. And we have uh, about 15,000 square feet. We have a food forest in our front yard uh, with a a bioswale collecting rainwater for the aquifer. We have a small backyard aquaponics system. We have row crops. We have a little miniature field. We have a pond. There's a stage and a bar. We do a lot of events here. And there's a long table for uh, farm-to-table dinners, as well as uh, I have my own little herd of fiber and milk goats, along with some chickens, fancy chickens and egg-laying hens, and a little rabbit warren. I think that's all the little areas of the farm. Yeah, I've seen the front yard is impressive because it's got fruit trees in 24-inch boxes, but those are really established in there. And and then there was uh, a, a swale running through the front yard and wildflowers growing everywhere. And then you go into the, and you think like, this is amazing. And then you go into the backyard and it's even more amazing. Uh, and Richard's quite the, the architect, well, I would say like, I won't say handyman cause that's kind of a, that downplays his skills, but he really knows how to build structures. And there are several back there and the pond is surrounded by what are those dead, the, those trees that were, dead but they put they were repurposed as a many of the materials actually are in their second or third life Mm -hmm. and we had a friend who was a landscaper and took down a very large ficus tree in venice and they chose their favorite large stems and created a nest around the pond and now there is a a bower of white roses growing all over that nest so It's only gotten more beautiful as time has worn on. I can't wait to see it again someday when I'm, when I'm able to come out there. It's really magical that space. I want to back up for a minute, back to the beginning. Where did you get your agricultural background and how did this all begin for you? Well, I uh, have a, a son who's now 30, but when he was younger, I wanted to participate in his uh, school in some way. And uh, he was in Santa Monica with 
Bonnie Friedman's uh, Gardening Angel program, which is one of the very first garden school programs, again, in the city. And uh, she suggested I go to this course called the Master Gardener program. And I did and enjoyed it and learned so much. And so I was involved in growing uh, fruits and vegetables in the schools um, from uh, elementary school to his middle school years. And that was all in Santa Monica and continued to just transform. Uh, we had a home in Venice, so we, we, we grew food and uh, California natives there took out the lawn and became very committed to becoming a land steward. I always did a lot of backpacking with my father and have been, you know, a great lover of the outdoors since I was in my teenage years. Now, before we started recording, you were telling me that you just finished getting your master's degree. Tell me a little bit about that and what this is, you know, what, where we've come to now. Right. So there's been a whole arc. I can share that my husband and I purchased this property to do an encore career in aquaponics. We were going to be building a greenhouse to scale in the backyard and grow lettuce and sell it to uh, restaurants as our encore career. And as life happens, we had a, a cowboy knock on our door the first uh, evening that the house had been restored and asked if they could lease the backyard for horses. And so we had him come for six months and he introduced us to the community here and his six months turned into three and a half years. And we realized that growing people was gonna be a lot more interesting than growing lettuce. Yes. <laughs> and so I, I was uh, started to do after school programming and other educational pursuits and had been asked to speak in several different universities as a guest speaker and enjoyed that experience to the point that one of the professors suggested I go get my master's degree so I could teach. And so I uh, just finished at the Lyle Center for Regenerative Studies at Cal Poly Pomona and uh, had a marvelous time reconnecting with really some of the cultural changes that have shifted in the 40 years since I went to school. And wow, if I could recommend anything to somebody who has, you know, is older, it would be connect with our younger generation in a, in a meaningful way. So it's been a very powerful transformational experience. And now teaching urban agriculture business models uh, in the plant science department, as well as I'll in the fall, I'll be teaching an intro to urban agriculture course. And long-term, the university is uh, planning to put, put together a urban and community agriculture center that would really be for the entire region, right? That would, would extend beyond even LA County and include San Bernardino, uh, Orange County, San Diego, and be a resource and connector of all of these agricultural activities that we have in this region. So I think there's a good long future to urban agriculture moving forward. And that's so great because most of the data that we get comes from up north, UC Davis, you know, and Berkeley and all of that. And so we need something really local that addresses the difference between <laughs> the rain you get in Northern California versus the dryness we get here. So it, Hello. I think, yeah, yes. I, know, huge. I did mine on urban ranching because of my goats. So I'm very okay. interested in this notion of using livestock as uh, 
brush clearance for wildfire and regenerating soil. Right. Right. So there's, there's some very interesting sort of stacking functions that you can look at in that space as well as participatory practice. So, you know, we have some great examples from our uh, comrades in Northern California on what it looks like to have participatory programs where community members are really driving what the research is, what the questions are, how, how are we going to, you know, put together a program that rectifies some environmental justice issues that are still outstanding today. That's exciting. I can't wait to see where that goes. Now, we met years ago when my husband lived in Venice Beach, really just down the block from you. And I remember talking to you out on the street and you were talking about how like you used to duck from gunfire back when Venice, be- you know, when you first lived in Venice. And then now it's like this completely different space. But Venice is well known for being tiny. The lots are really small. And I wondered how it was it like, I mean, you sort of answered the question that the horse people showed up, <laughs> but I wondered what it was like to go from this small confining lot in Venice to a large space that allows enough room for livestock, a pond, a garden, and a learning space. What was that transition like for you? Well, luckily, uh, Richard is a terrific space planner. Mm. And so he is really good about using space and coming up with different uh, zones. We were really influenced by Christopher Alexander's A Pattern Language. So if you don't know that book, it's a really wonderful foundational text in, in architecture and design thinking. And he talks a lot about outdoor rooms, Mm -hmm. So we use that kind of as a guide in order to create these spaces throughout the farm. And we've been doing it for six years now. So it's starting to fill in. Somebody said to me, what's next? And I thought, oh, I don't have a whole (laughs) lot left for what's next. And I uh, always confess to people, I've killed a lot of plants in my day. And so uh, we, you know, also are very ready to be sort of organic in the way that we will test things. And this is a very heavy soil here. This is part of the LA River's uh, floodplain. Up until even the 70s, it, it flooded here in Compton. So the soil is very rich, but it's very heavy clay. And so there's certain things that I find difficult to grow, like for the life of me, I cannot get dill to grow in my yard. Oh. <laughs> you know, sometimes I just give into that and, and grow the things that want to be here. Yeah. I don't grow cauliflower uh, here. It just doesn't work here. Uh, and I also have given up on any melons except for watermelon because coastal gardens don't have the heat. Like out where you are, you can grow melons because it's hot out there, but we don't get the heat that melons need. But I I have also, I've had trouble with dill. I only grow dill in the fall and winter and they, it works then. And I found that growing it from seed, just scattering tons of seed everywhere, it'll come up and then it'll volunteer again from year to year. But in the spring and summer months, I just don't even try growing it because it doesn't, doesn't like it. I had some success in the aquaponics this year. So I think oh, that's good my place. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. Water. It wants water, a lot yeah, of it and cool exactly. temperatures. So that's good. All right. So let's talk about farm camp because it sounds really intriguing and I've seen the space and I imagine it's just this wonderland for kids. So tell me what goes on during the summer out there at Moonwater Farm. Yes, we're getting ready to start our sixth year 
and we run a summer program. It'll vary in how many weeks we do. This year, I'm, I'm proud to say I have a great uh, new partner, Camp Journeys, that are from uh, Compton that will be uh, programming and doing a lot of the curriculum. So we uh, put together some themed weeks for the youth. And this year, for the very first time, we're going to accept uh, very young from five to seven year olds for one of the weeks. Uh, one of the teachers is a you know, pre-K teacher, so they, they know that age group quite well. And um, so we have discovery week for the, the, the littles. We're going to, you know, incubate eggs and make milk paint and do a whole lot of different activities that will engage them in how really the earth is feeding us. And, and when I say feeding us, I mean, in so many ways, we, we rarely think about the fact that our clothes are coming from the earth. Okay, many of us are wearing plastic clothes today too, but we're starting to have this soil to skin conversation here as well as the soil, you know, to food and table conversation. Right. So the older groups will do one that focuses on the animals specifically. Uh, we've got another one on food and culture. So we, we put a lot of energy into making sure we're doing anti-racist work and looking at how we can be both intergenerational, diverse, and really look at the food system and say, how do we have more justice in the way that we have access to good food? And then we have uh, scientists coming from Houston, and we'll be doing a lot of really interesting hands-on chemistry, biology uh, projects for the youth in the very last week. And then we're starting our third year of youth leadership development. And that is an opportunity for the teens all the way up to about 2021 20, uh, youth to join us, do um, leadership skill building, uh, learn workshops that they can actually lead for the younger kids here, work on conflict resolution. You know, it's one thing for us to talk about it in the leadership skill week, but then when the rubber hits the road and they have to really deal with the kids, you know, you, you can see it, it's a lot of skill building going on. Yeah. And I'm happy to say that most of the youth that started have continued and returned back in, in that program in particular, but even in farm camp. We had to start the youth leadership development because the kids outgrew farm camp. So, you know, these are these sort of natural cycles that happen if, if you're, you're doing things that are meeting the needs of the community. That's so great to hear. I, you know, in Hollywood, they say never work with kids or pets and you're doing both. So it must be a lot of chaos, <laughs> but, but like really great, the great kind of chaos out there all the time. Right. Yeah, it is pretty hectic. You're right. But, but I, you know, I, I, I flop on the couch at the end of one of my farm camp days and just filled with love and generosity and the enthusiasm that they bring in here is palpable and they leave it. So I think when others walk into the space, they're always like, oh, wow, this is so great. And I think you think it's all the plants but it's all the people too. Yeah. That space is really imbued with a great love. You can tell when you're there. Now, I, I know you mentioned earlier about that. The original idea was to start an aquaponics operation. There's a lot of innovative projects going on there, but I remember seeing this aquaponics tank in the driveway. <laughs> it was 
pretty elaborate and not small. And I thought I'd ask you about that. Is it still in use and what's going it's on? It's absolutely that? in use. It actually just had a little bit of an overhaul. Um, we had put it on a wooden platform and, you know, water and wood are not a good mix. No. <laughs> so a little, a little oversight there. Uh, but, you know, live and learn. It was up for, I don't know, four or five years, but they, they've since it's now sitting on concrete base it's a media bed design. So there's three different designs in aquaponics. Uh, uh, there's the media bed, there's raft culture where the roots are hanging in the water all the time. And then there's NFT where the water is flowing through the tube all the time. So a media bed fills up once an hour and drains. Mm. And we chose that because you can actually grow fruiting vegetables in that kind of a system. I'm going to confess, Christy, it's definitely a fussy way to grow food yeah. because the plants are looking for, you know, their ideal pH is six and a half. The fish want more like around seven, seven, five. And the water is coming out of the tap at eight. Right. We have very <laughs> alkaline water here in Los Angeles. Yes, we do. <laughs> thanks to all that recycling. Um, but we've got a, a, a pile of very healthy goldfish that started off, you know, at about three quarters of an inch and they are probably a good six inches and they seem to withstand the metropolitan water, great source of food. And what it does is it helps link this conversation around the biological activity that is so essential, right? We talk about the, the soil food web and how much biological activity is in, you know, a handful of soil. Right. We talk about the biological activity that's inside the goat's rumen and does an amazing job, you know, eating lignin and wood, woody uh, material. And here are the this biological activity all over these rocks that are in the aquaponics that are converting fish waste into plant food. So hopefully really kind of triggers uh, anybody, but particularly youth into understanding these processes that are so critical for our survival and maybe encourage more scientific inquiry for, for their studies, right? That I, that's my, always my hope. Like I can have more scientists in the world. I'll be happy. I love that idea. And, and you mentioned some, a little bit of finickiness with the aquaponics system. I'm, I'm wondering what are some of the bigger issues that you've had to deal with on the farm? Is it pests, diseases? Is it the kids? <laughs> you know, what is it that you have to deal with the most there? Oh, this has been a really hard year with rats. Oh my God. Yes. <laughs> so the rats really, um, I don't use any, um, pesticides at, or chemicals really at all here, but I had to put out the boxes for the rats this year. I couldn't plant my field. Well, I did plant my field and they ate everything. So it's the basically, you know, I, I called it the W hotel and somebody said, no, 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 Kathleen, it's the Cancun resort because <laughs> they've got, you know, all the food they need, all the water they need, all the shelter they need. And then the raccoon somehow found my baby chick. So I lost Aww. a dozen beautiful animals. Yeah. One that I had incubated from an egg. So I was Aww. really sad. Oh my God. I'm so sorry. Last year was a difficult birth for two of my goats and I lost the babies and I was a brand new goat mommy. I had two goats that had gorgeous fiber goats, but I had two Nigerians that lost their babies. So I guess the animal 
piece is really one of the ones that is so much work. You know, you're, you're attracted to the cute animal, but you really recognize over time just how much care and, and complexity it brings to an operation. So really have a lot of respect for our ranching community. Um, and I, I know there's a lot of problematic issues around, you know, CAFOs and um, concentrated feedlots. So I'm not s- supporting the kind of food growing, but um, the, the ranchers that are out there do want to raise healthy animals, right? That, that is their practice. Yeah. I always said I want a mini cow because I would love to have that as part of my ecosystem. But the husbandry piece of that is scary to me. I just don't want to be responsible for having to shepherd a birth or any of the stuff that goes along with that. And I, it's scary. So uh, cheers to you for taking that on. That's a huge responsibility. And I think people should not go into that blindly. It's a really big deal. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I don't know if it's a problem, but I have a accumulation of all of the composting materials too. Right. Mm-hmm. And so ha- keeping up with all of that can be a lot too, <laughs> right. We have volunteers, but sometimes when you're like, yeah, it's time to turn the compost pile, that isn't their favorite job. Right. I do have one intern once from Cal State Dominguez Hills who, who understood it as the soul of the farm. And so that was a really good year. <laughs> that is good. I have out my window while I'm talking to you right now, I have a pile of biomass that I've been needing to shred since November. And I just haven't done it because we had a pandemic and I just kind of gave up on a few things, but yeah, that circulation of nutrients, is really important to keep things going. So I'm going to have to import compost for my garden beds this year. I used up what I had from the previous compost batch, but I have to import it. So you do, you have to keep on top of it or else it gets ahead of you. And then you've got piles and piles of biomass lying around with that attracts rats, which is a bad thing. So it's a circle, you know? Yeah. And the rat issue was terrible. When people disappeared off the streets, the rats came out in force and, um, and we've also had the squirrels have discovered our, our bird feeders and the, and the chicken feed thing. And so, you know, it's just fun, always fun. So Anyway, I, uh, I want to jump to tip time. Do you have a favorite tip you'd like to share with the Garden Nerd audience? Well, I thought it would be really good to remind folks to think about what they name in permaculture as guild planting. And we, many of us know companion planting and guilds, I feel like, take it one step further and really looking at plants that can help fertilize Uh, attract beneficials, produce nectar for the pollinators, repel pests, and suppress grass. So for instance, around my apple tree, I've got garlic chives, I've got comfrey, I've got chicory, and I've got yarrow and clover. And so those are all doing different things around that apple tree. And it looks good too. Yeah, But, you know, you've got uh, some of the bigger plants are going to help provide sort of the mulching, often nasturtiums, a good one for that. Mm -hmm. Fertility plants like comfrey and borage are really great. And then those smelly plants will often uh, keep away some of the insects. So, you know, we see like basil and tomatoes. We've we've heard that one before. Uh, But garlic chives is a really good one. 
and delicious and they have cute flowers. <laughs> I know they do. And I, you know, I'm a big fan of comfrey. I've got one growing here and it gets really, it's funny cause it dies back almost completely in the winter and that here anyway, it does. And then it comes back as this majestic, this beautiful thing. I've got it next to some clary sage and in with my random nasturtiums and parsley that keep volunteering year after year. But I love that you're talking about guilds because guilds are mostly in the permaculture world written for Northern climates. And they talk about gooseberries and currants. And I'm like, we don't grow those here. Somebody come up with, with guilds for Southern climates or warm winter climates. That would be great. So the one that this, this that you mentioned is nice. And I'm glad to see that, that it's working for you over there at Moonwater Farm. Yes, I mean, it's, it, we can share it's sort of soft science in that there isn't a lot of research done at the university. It, it's really based on observation. But I feel, particularly having done my own research recently, that we need to pay more attention to sort of our observation skills. And while it may not go head to head with sort of a scientific research plan, it's not reductive, right? It's, it's inclusive. And there's many ways to co-create knowledge. So I, you know, encourage your listeners to experiment in their garden, look at, you know, the, the specifics around what's attracting beneficials, what plants fertilize, what plants grow a lot of mass like squash or nasturtiums that can be used as mulch? You know, what's going to suppress the grass? Cardboard mulch is a great one for that. Right. You know, that's one people also forget. Like I do that all around my trees and they're having a bumper year this year with the flowering. Can I ask a follow-up question about that? Because I know, and I've seen this so many times, especially with very new permaculture people, they put down a layer of cardboard expecting that it's going to choke out crabgrass and Bermuda and all the rhizome running. No, you need thick, thick, thick layers of cardboard in order to choke that stuff out because it thrives in darkness. So I tell me what ever <laughs> succeeded yeah. in choking Bermuda grass ever. I was just having this conversation yesterday I've only ever got it under control through double digging. Yeah. And it's really oh. true. I, I've, what, what I have found in instances and in at least one person I know has succeeded with this, I'm talking 12 to 18 inches. That sounds right. Of biomass. It's <laughs> yes. not four. It's not five. It's not no. six. It's 12 to 18. So I know it. everyone feels really ambitious when they get started. We're like, I'm going to sheet mulch. I'm like, good luck with that. Come back yes. and tell me how it works. So I, Thank you so much for sharing those details and especially about the guilds. I think observation is key and that is a great tip for our audience going forward. So thank you so much for that expert tip, Kathleen. And thank you for being on the Garden Nerd Tip of the Week podcast. So much fun, Christy. Thank you again. Sure. And now how do people find you? We are at moonwaterfarm.net online. And you can Google Moonwater Farm and it will come up and we are on the map. So you can even just Google Moonwater Farm and for your directions. Cool. We have an Instagram account too, at Moonwater Farm. And always looking for collaborators in the food system that are seeking uh, equitable solutions for our uh, historically overlooked communities. So very happy to talk with anybody doing work in the food system that's Excellent. working on those issues all well, right anybody but i mean that is our that's our priority fantastic 
All right, garden nerds, you'll find a link to Moonwater Farm on gardennerd.com this week. We'll also post links to their website and their social media feed. That's it for this week. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Visit us for tons of free gardening information at gardennerd.com. Show your support for this podcast and the other free stuff on Garden Nerd by becoming a Patreon subscriber. You'll find us on Instagram and Twitter under gardennerd1, on Facebook at gardennerd.com, and of course, our Garden Nerd YouTube channel. Happy gardening.